You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. And this episode picks up where we left off with Food and Water Watch's Jim Walsh and Tomas Morales Rebecki. The first half of this interview is titled Big Oil and the Hydrogen Scam. In the previous episode, Jim was explaining the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, a law that's supposed to protect us all from hazardous waste. Jim, you were saying that the water that the oil and gas can pull up, they're not legally responsible for that. If they're not disclosing what they're putting in, they can't really be held accountable for what they put in or what they're pulling out. So it's kind of just a gray area in their favor. Is that sound right? To say the least, I don't know that there's much gray area about this. The oil and gas industry is exempt from major hazardous waste laws that really say that that oil and gas waste is not considered hazardous by the federal government, despite the fact that we know it contains a lot of harmful chemicals and elements, contains significant heavy metals, and also can contain radioactive elements. And there are significant challenges with safely treating this waste because the oil and gas industry doesn't even know what's in the final product that comes out of a well because of all the chemicals that would come back up that have been otherwise trapped deep within the earth for millions of years. And so this should be a major concern of every policymaker and everyone who cares about the human right to water and access to safe, clean drinking water. Uh, The oil and gas industry and the fracking industry is one of the biggest threats that we have to safe, clean drinking water in the country. And they continue to take fresh water and pollute it while perpetuating an energy system that is warming our planet and also creating its own set of water challenges for our communities. So how is the fossil fuel industry's wastewater or produced water allowed to be reused? That produced water is the water that Jim was talking about that comes up with more radioactive chemicals and heavy metals than when it went down to begin with. So sometimes they will reuse that water for drilling practices, or they'll put it in in settling ponds. And a lot of these ponds were unlined in the Central Valley. So essentially that toxic water just seeped back into our groundwater and shallow aquifers and has polluted a lot of water in the Central Valley and other areas. So they are getting better about those settling ponds. But the other major thing they do with this produced water and toxic water is inject it not just back into the ground, but back into water aquifers. And actually, speaking of the State Water Board and CalGEM, they're actually, we're called DOGGER at the time, the Department of Oil, Gas, and Geothermal Resources. Back in 2014, they were actually caught asleep at the wheel. They let oil companies throughout the state of California and three aquifers here in Ventura County They let them inject radioactive, dirty wastewater into aquifers that were supposed to be protected under our Clean Water Drinking Act, a federal drinking act. So the federal EPA had to come in and tell them, hey, you need to get a hold of this this problem. You're polluting aquifers that we could be using in the future. So they established an aquifer exemption process, which would allow these oil operators to apply for exemption. So it's kind of like a a free pass. It's like, hey, yeah, we were accidentally injecting into these clean protected aquifers. Give us a free pass so we can continue to do it. Now you just won't use these aquifers in the future. So to this day, we have not had any final say on any of the local aquifer exemptions here in Ventura County. And the oil industry just continue to pollute these aquifers. And they will argue, 
it's not as pure as some of the aquifers, but it's still protected under the Clean Water Act. They broke that law. This water could be purified and the water board and CalGEM are just sitting there with their hand behind their back. Wait, where did you say these three aquifers are? Three of them are just here in Ventura County. There's thousands of these injection wells throughout the state. A lot of them are in the Central Valley, Monterey, Central Coast, other areas. Three of them in Ventura County, one by the Piru area, one in the Upper Ojai, and then one here on the Oxnard Plain. So they had a hearing, I think, back in like 2017 for the one in Fillmore Piru area. But they have not had a hearing to date for the Oxnard aquifer exemption. So these oil companies are just continuing to inject into these federally protected aquifers and oil regulators and the water board are just sitting around and just letting them do it. Wow. So how would someone know if they live in one of those areas that they're injecting this produced water back into a water source for the future? There's great maps that show exactly where those aquifers were. I just want to make it clear, none of those are currently being used for drinking water as we speak, but they have the potential to be used in the future. And they were protected under the Clean Drinking Water Act because of the freshness of their water. So ones that are being used by private wells or other local municipal wells, those have been stopped. But the ones that are polluting and continue to pollute our potential future water are still ongoing. And those are throughout the state. And here in California, the oil and gas industry uses hundreds of millions of gallons of fresh water for drilling operations annually. That's not including the polluted water they use, too, and the water they're attempting to pollute. So it's just like a vicious cycle because the fracking and drilling contribute to climate change, and then they suck up our finite water sources, and then drought and wildfires worsen from climate change. So our own research team found that in January of 2018 to March 2021, the oil and gas industry used more than 3 billion gallons of fresh water for drilling operations. This is the equivalent of around 4,570 Olympic-sized swimming pools or 120 million showers. Or just like for a local example, the fresh water sucked up by the oil and gas industry during this period could have provided everyone in the city of Ventura with the recommended amount of daily water for 22 months. So they are definitely using a large amount of fresh water, but the biggest threat like we've been talking about, is the contamination of our aquifers and our current water sources. And we've seen it happen in other areas and the possibility of future contaminating more water and taking a whole aquifer offline is just crazy, especially in a time of drought, especially a time of climate crisis. For sure. Do you know where the water came from? Was it from the Central Valley Project or the State Water Project? Do we know? It's a mix of all those different projects, depending on the area where you're drilling. Here in Ventura, we're not hooked into the state water project. So a lot of that comes from rivers or from our lakes and local aquifers. So that would mean that the fossil fuel industry is directly impacting our riparian ecosystems. Exactly. When we talk about the state water board, we learn that there's all these emerging contaminants. So I imagine that that makes it really difficult for anybody that's trying to regulate these chemicals in any real way. Exactly. So when they say, oh, we've done the test of the water, it's safe. How, what have you tested for? And the changing chemicals in the industry, it's impossible. It's like whack-a-mole. It's a laundry list, like hundreds of chemicals to begin with, and they don't have the resources or even some of the tests to test for some of these chemicals. So when they say they're testing, it's for which chemicals, for what amounts, and 
what are they leaving out is always the big question. I was reading that produced water from fracking isn't legal in California. It's potentially legal in other states. I saw Oregon's like working on it for fracking, but for oil, I heard that we can use that in agriculture. Does that sound accurate to you or what what are you guys finding out? Yeah, actually it's any type of oil drilling produced water. Okay. This practice has been going on for a few years in the Central Valley and these farmers there that are using water intensive crops are desperate for any new sources of water. So, uh, what they've been doing in a lot of the Central Valley water districts is they're blending this produced water that comes up as radioactive and they're only filtering it through walnut shells. They filter that water through some walnut shells and then they blend it with fresh water and then they sell it back to farmers. And these farmers are using it on their crops from their tangerines to their almonds to grow all of our crops. And there's been very little studies done on the health impacts of this. And now they're trying to expand it into other counties. They are even talked about doing it here in Ventura County and other agricultural areas that are drought stricken and have oil and gas next to them. So we really have a lot more questions and answers with this practice. A lot more studies need to be done. The studies that were done were done mostly by industry insiders. So it's a very scary idea to think that we're putting radioactive chemicals onto our crops and very little people know about this or talk about it. And they're actually trying to expand it because they, they think that they've had success with this, but this should not be done in the first place. But uh, there needs to be a lot more tests done before we move forward anyway. That's really interesting. I was reading an article by Inside Climate News by Lisa Gross. The article was all about California regulators banning fracking wastewater for irrigation, but allow wastewater from oil drilling. And scientists say there's little to no difference. Exactly. It's hard to tell like where the produced water is coming from, which exact because every oil field, even within the oil field, each oil well might sometimes be using different techniques. Like one might be using cyclic steam, which uses a lot of water. One might be using fracking, which uses a lot of water or just conventional oil drilling too, that brings up water with it. So there's a lot of sources. They're not distinguishing. They're not saying, okay, no fracking, wastewater, only this water. It's every wastewater that's coming up with oil production in those areas is getting blended into that fresh water mix and being sold to farmers. And then do you know where exactly these areas are or who these farmers are or who these water resellers are? Yeah, the Coelho Water District is one of the districts in Kern County that uses a slot and wonderful company, some of our favorite big corporate ag, they use a lot of it on their cuties, uh, their pomegranates, and almonds and pistachios. So if you want to avoid produced water-grown crops, I would avoid anything from the wonderful company. But also on top of that, they are huge water abusers in the Central Valley too, and do lots of things to manipulate the water market around them. Okay, we're going to take a quick music break, and we'll be right back. Trouble have I been in now? It's a dangerous, sweet danger. 
Possession by the Pleasure Kills. So I've heard some in the news about SB 1137 referendum, and you mentioned it earlier, Tomas. What would this mean for the state of California? Yes. So we passed one of like the biggest environmental justice bills in the history of California. A lot of us are saying this past year with the SB 1137, and it created health and safety buffer zones of 3,200 feet between homes, schools, and hospitals and other sensitive sites. And we know from study after study and health experts that living this close to oil and gas wells increases your risk of cancer, asthma, heart disease, preterm birth, and other reproductive issues. And over 1 million Californians live within a mile of oil and gas operations, a distance that would have negative health effects on you. And again, the majority of these oil wells that are near homes and schools are in communities of color here in the Central Valley or here in Ventura County too in LA. So this is is a huge environmental justice issue and advocates have been fighting for over a decade to get any type of health and safety buffer zone. So it was really big when Governor Newsom actually got it passed because he actually put his full weight behind it, which he hadn't done in the past. But instantly, the oil industry, within three days, they started collecting signatures to undo the law. Because in California, we have a referendum process that if something passes a local or state legislator and the citizens don't like it, they have the last resort of a referendum process, which means you collect enough signatures and you turn them in, and then you're able to qualify to put whatever policy was just passed onto the ballot. So then the voters would have the final decision on if we have these health and safety buffer zones or not. So the oil industry, they went out three days later, spent $20 million on getting paid signature gatherers to collect 623,000 signatures. And they just recently turned them in a month ago. And as of now, we know it's qualified. So this Health and safety buffer zone law, this law that we fought over a decade for, is now being paused. It was supposed to go into effect January 1st, but now since they turned in the right amount of signatures, it's been paused and we're not going to be able to vote on it until 2024. So right now we're stuck in a limbo. We don't have any protections and a lot of oil companies are rushing to get permits near homes and schools while there's a break in the law. This is just another example of big oil undermining our democracy and just throwing as much money as they can at a problem and just lying to voters, too. During the petition signature gathering process, we saw them telling voters that this would actually protect people from oil wells near homes and schools. This is for green jobs. Or they just exaggerate. This will shut down every single job in the oil industry if if this passes. So. There's no laws about them lying to get those signatures to begin with, but also with $20 million, you can get anything qualified to be on an initiative for the state, or you can undo any policies that are being enforced on you by the state. So our referendum process and our direct democracy process has definitely been hijacked by big oil, but also other big corporations like Uber and Lyft, as we saw with other propositions in the past. So SB 1137, we're going to be working really hard to make sure that we pass it in 2024 once and for all. But also we need to be calling on our governor and our regulators to step up in the meantime and put in some temporary protections. Governor Newsom has done this in the past through executive authority. He's put a moratorium of all fracking. We think he should be doing the same right now with homes and schools, but also all new oil drilling to begin with. He has that power to put that moratorium in. He has that power to do the fracking ban. So We really need the governor to step up between now and 2024, but also we need 
Calgem, our regulators, to step up. And our governor definitely has a lot of sway over who gets appointed, what they're doing, and how we can get better regulations in the meantime. But again, this is just very disheartening because we've seen it happen here at the local level in Ventura County where oil industry just throws millions of dollars, lies to the community, and undoes really popular common sense reforms. Did you say Governor Newsom put a moratorium on fracking? For a while, he did a temporary moratorium on, on fracking. Oh, okay. But it's back on. They can frack. Exactly. Yeah. So now, now he put an executive order to stop fracking by 2024. But again, for a long time, he denied that he had that executive authority. He asked for the legislator to send him a bill. But the bill that they started that session actually died in committee, and he didn't want to speak out or try to navigate that bill through the legislator like he did with the SB 1137. So after that first initial attempt to ban fracking through the legislator failed, a couple months later, uh, Newsom announced his executive order to ban fracking in 2024, the exact authority we said he had all along. But we still think it should have been quicker and it should extend to all new oil and gas projects because this is only fracking. All oil and gas phase out is not going to come till 2045. And fracking accounts for a small amount of oil drilling here in California, about 17% of the total oil and gas drilling. 95% of that fracking occurs in the San Joaquin Valley and in Kern County too. So it's going to affect a good portion of drilling, especially a dangerous type of drilling. but there's other types of drilling, too, that are just as dangerous and need to be stopped immediately because of their threats to our community's health, but also our, our precious water resources. Does that mean there would also be a moratorium on hydrogen? Yeah, hydrogen isn't something that's extracted, right? It's not drilled from the earth. It's produced from other sources. And so prohibition on hydrogen uh, production, this other law, I, I don't see any way that would impact hydrogen production. The industry could easily import the gas from elsewhere or import the hydrogen from elsewhere, potentially create it from other sources. I don't see how they'd be linked. I don't know, Thomas, you maybe have another perspective on that. The majority of our, our natural gas to begin with and the fracked gas, like we've been talking about, it comes from outside of the state um, from the Southwest. And the majority of of fracking that is going on is going on in the Central Valley. And a lot of it is not for natural gas. So these hydrogen hubs, they'll definitely still be bringing in gas from other areas to produce the hydrogen. They're going to produce it here in California, or they'll just import the hydrogen from other states that have more lax regulations. But yeah, a ban on fracking is not going to stop any hydrogen production in the near future in California. And the referendum is not just for fracking, it's also for oil. The referendum is only for the setbacks. So that's for any type of oil extraction near homes and schools. So anything within 3,200 feet uh, would not get approved, whether it's fracking, a regular oil well, or cyclic steam. So that law specifically just about setbacks is what's getting put to a referendum. Um, The fracking executive order, that is in place and will happen by 2024 under current pace. And then that would mean all existing oil and gas wells would have to either be shut down or moved that are in that setback zone. Yeah, that's a great question because that's been the big fight during the whole attempt to pass these laws to begin with. Can we make it retroactive to wells that have already been drilled or can it only apply to new wells? So 
a lot of the legislation in the past was only applying to new wells, but that does nothing for the communities being currently impacted. So SB 1137 actually had a sunset on these wells. So it banned all new oil wells, but also after a few years, any reworking of oil wells within the zone would be legal. So a lot of these oil wells need maintenance, regular redrills, stimulation to keep them going. So eventually those wells were going to get phased out through SB 1137. So that was great because that was a big important part. We didn't want anyone left behind and new wells is good, but there's a legacy of environmental racism we really need to undo with this neighborhood drilling. So we've talked some about Kyle Jam and politics. I know the fossil fuel industry is always saying how they're going broke, but they spend a lot of money in politics and on these campaigns. Do you know how much money they spend regionally? Yeah. The oil and gas industry, as we've seen with their record profits, they're spending record money to lobby and undermine California's green laws. So in the state of California alone, the oil and gas industry spent over $34.2 million in the 2021-2022 legislative session. And a lot of that was trying to stop 1137 and some of these better regulations that created buffer zones. A lot of these big entities are like the Western States Petroleum Association, Chevron, which is based here in California too. They are lobbying to undermine our clean goals for the future, but a lot of it was done too to stop a lot of these pragmatic solutions like buffer zones or banning fracking. So they are very sly about how they get the money to, to these legislators. Some legislators can sign no fossil fuel money pledges, but um, as we've seen locally too, a candidate signed the no oil pledge and gave back all the oil money, but then the oil industry just came in and created an independent expenditure and spent money on their behalf and got them elected. And they are indebted to the oil industry, even though they signed the no oil pledge and didn't take any oil money during their official campaign to themselves. So there's ways that some people can get around these laws. Oil industry is finding any ways to undermine local and even statewide regulations through massive amounts of spending, which is coming by record profits at the pump by price gouging us, especially here in California. So they're using these record profits to spend record money on on lobbying legislators to undermine our regulations. Wait, just to reiterate, how many million? 34.2 million last year here in the state of California. And nationally, the oil and gas industry spent 124.4 million on federal lobbying. Can you elaborate on how independent expenditures work? Yeah, so that's the thing with campaign laws constantly changing, with Citizens United, with dark money just being able to flood our elections. We've been seeing that with the oil and gas industry from local to statewide elections. So any candidate that is going to run for office will set up their own personal campaign fund. And there's regulations about how much you can receive with these, how much money you can take from a certain entity. And that's where a lot of these elected officials will pledge, I'm not going to take any oil and gas money. So you can look at their records and you can see that not one dime has gone to their campaign in the oil and gas industry. But separate of the candidates running in these elections, entities, even environmental groups can come in and create independent expenditures. And these sometimes have no limits on the amount of money that can be given to them. And they can come in and support a candidate without that candidate's approval. So the candidate could even claim like, oh, I had nothing to do with them. But the oil industry knows who they want to get elected in certain elections. And even if you deny that 
you're going to take their money and you're going to push their policies, they can secretly create a fund that helps you win the election, take out the more pro-environmentalists. And that whole time that legislator can say, I took no oil money. I am not indebted to the oil industry. So there's lots of other ways around to get money to influence elected officials, even if they are pledging to not take oil money. Do we know who's not taking oil money? Yeah, so we can see who has taken the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge. So if you go to nofossilfuelmoney.org, a lot of our partners are part of this coalition. It's a national one, too, to get legislators. You can get your local city council members to your supervisors to even your state legislators to sign these. We've done them successfully locally and throughout the state. And really a way to keep receipts and hold these people accountable once they get into office. But at the same time, we, we know that elected officials are sly getting money to their own propositions that they want to get passed or certain pet projects, like an oil company will come in and donate to a local nonprofit that has ties to that legislator. And one of the problems too was originally it was called the No Oil Money Pledge. And Governor Newsom actually signed this pledge when he was first running for governor, but he took thousands of dollars from Sempra, a billion dollar gas company that owns SoCal Gas and is the biggest gas company in the United States. He took massive amounts from Semper Energy. He didn't count that as oil money, but it's fossil fuel money. So the pledge has been updated to no fossil fuel money, but Governor Newsom still continues to take money from Sempra, this polluter that owns SoCal Gas and that owns Aliso Canyon, site of one of the biggest gas blowouts in U.S. history, a place that Governor Gavin Newsom has promised to shut down while he was running for office and has to this day not shut it down. So he's not going to be in a hurry to regulate some of his biggest supporters. So it's really important, like when we're talking about fossil fuel money, we talk about all fossil fuel money, not just oil, because the gas industry are tied together with them and they're just as bad in a lot of cases. For sure. Could you tell us a little bit about how the different types of extraction are classified? Yeah. So in just basic layman's terms, fracking you can frack for natural gas and oil. It's majority used for natural gas. Basically, it's putting high pressure water with chemicals, pushing it down into the formation to crack the rock and release the gas or the oil in those formations. So yeah, as we know, it can contaminate water, can cause earthquakes, but there's other types of extreme extractions that are just as dangerous and we clump them together with fracking. There are other methods than the typical you put a straw on the ground and the oil comes out like a traditional well, just straight in, straight out. And the other types of extreme extraction that are prevalent here in California and other places too that are just as risky as fracking are cyclic steam injection. And like I said, this is used for other formations where there's thick tar sands oil. You don't really need to break the rock up, but you just need to heat up a bunch of water and chemicals to a really high temperature push that into the ground, which can also cause earthquakes and contaminate our water and bring that oil back up with all that wastewater. And then also there's another type, and there's even more than this, but these are just like the broader types of extreme extraction. There's acidization. And this is really nasty because they use harmful chemicals to go in and melt the rock and free up that gas and oil and bring up that toxic slurry too. So acidization, and cyclic steam are included in the fracking ban for here in California. We fought really hard to make sure those were included because, like we said, fracking is going on a lot in the Central Valley, but other areas like here in the Central Coast, we're using cyclic steam and acidization, which is just as dangerous to our health and to our water supplies. 
So just to clarify, when I hear the word fracking, that means they could be fracking for oil or gas. I guess I thought they're pumping for oil, but they can frack for it. Exactly. There's even like smaller different types of methods too, like water flooding. And they all differ in little ways. But if we just are trying to ban fracking, we're losing all these umbrella types of extreme extraction that are just as risky, just as nasty too. Fracking is only considered when you reach a certain pressure that can fracture rock. So a lot of these cyclic steam operations are actually going to high enough pressures that it could be considered fracking, but they're not being regulated like fracking in some areas because it's still considered cyclic steam. But a lot of these oil operators are their own regulators. So if no one's there to check the pressure, a cyclic steam operation could easily turn into a fracking operation. Oh, interesting. Could you help us identify the different types of extraction methods and what they look like? What we think of fracking is actually a drill rig. So those big tall towers, those are brought in during a lot of different types of just drilling a a normal oil well. You bring in these big crane-like structures that go down and drill the well. So when you see fracking, they have a, a larger one of those, but the fracking happens in a short period of time. So they go in, there might be an oil well that's already existing, and they just want to frack it to produce more oil and water out of it. So they'll bring in the machinery, frack, and loosen up all that water, and the pump jack will continue to be pulling out the oil and gas after the well has been fracked or after it's been cyclic steamed or acidized. So when you see those towers, that means either they're doing well maintenance on it or they're going to be doing an extreme extraction method, but it's not going on through the whole life of the oil well. When you see those pump jacks too, those could be fracking wells, but they've already been fracked and now they're just keeping that flow coming in and out. Where I live... I went bike ride and I saw like a a pool, the retention pond, and then I saw a bunch of oil rigs. And then I saw up on the hill, they had a fracking type looking thing, but then they removed it. So now that makes sense. I was like, oh, maybe they decided not to do it, but it just means that the fracking is only there for a short amount of time, but then they can still frack after that uh, tower's on. Exactly. They can re-stimulate And those are drill rigs. So that could have been up there just to like be drilling a regular well or just like doing maintenance on it, drilling a new one, maybe going horizontal. Maybe they got a permit to go horizontal. So so seeing those towers doesn't automatically say that there's fracking going on. It means that something is going on at that well. They're either re-drilling it or they could be stimulating it, fracking. But I know for sure here in Ventura County, especially in those formations, fracking isn't the best thing to use. So they could have been deepening the oil well or just drilling a new well together. Okay, thanks. That makes sense. Can you tell us a little bit about CalGEM, the Fossil Fuel Regulating Agency, and what it stands for? Yeah, California Geological Energy Management Division. And CalGEM is led by an appointed official by the governor. Most recent supervisor, Udawak Intuk, he resigned earlier this year and hasn't been replaced. And before working with CalGEM, he was a Chevron executive. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's been the problem plaguing the oil regulators here in California. So before it was even called CalGEM, it used to be called Dogger, and it was the Division of Oil, Gas, and Geothermal Resources. And this has been around for decades since oil production was just starting here in California. And going back to that original organization or or department, its mission wasn't to protect the communities and Californians from oil and gas production. Their sole mission was to make oil production as easy as possible for oil operators to have some oversight of it. But basically, their mission 
was to make oil and gas production as easy as possible and as lucrative as possible here. So recently, Senator Limon passed a bill to rebrand the agency. So now when they rebranded as CalGEM, they now have a mission to protect our communities and our health and requires CalGEM 2 to reduce and mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. So it's putting them so that they're actually regulators that are going in line with what our state is moving towards and protecting the citizens first, not protecting oil and gas operators and making sure that they're producing as much as what's been their their history. But still, even rebranding and renaming an agency is not going to stop the revolving door between the industry they're regulating and the regulators. So a lot of times we have the fox watching the hen house. It's, it's a captured agency. A lot of the people that retire from the oil and gas industry will get appointed there because they know the industry inside and out, but also they'll be a lot more lax on their friends and their buddies and industries that they're actually invested in. And that was a problem with Udawak too. And a lot of the other people in CalGEM and actually in 2018, a lot of senior supervisors, they were found to have personal investments in the very oil companies they're regulating. And in 2019, too, the agency doubled the number of fracking permits issued despite knowing the health risks. So that's one of the reasons why he stepped down, too. They're going out of sync with what the governor and what the state's goals actually were. And I think one of the final straws, too, was when CalGEM approved more than 100 new oil wells that were dangerously close to communities, despite SB 1137 being passed. They basically let these oil companies run on these permits and get these permits approved right before the implementation of SB 1137. Since then, it's been postponed because of the referendum. But a lot of these friendly practices, the oil and gas industry and just basically revolving door between the industry and regulators has been a problem and it continues to be a problem. So whoever does get appointed to this position needs to really change the whole attitude at that agency and really start making them live up to their new mission. Yeah, is that a realistic goal? Does Food and Water Watch have anybody in mind that would be good at this job? Or is it just a job for oil executives? Someone definitely would have to have an understanding of the industry inside and out. It doesn't have to be an engineer or someone coming from the industry. We have a lot of options of very smart scientists that have worked in the environmental industry or environmental justice. A lot of attorneys, especially since a lot of these laws and regulations get challenged, it'd be great to have a very savvy environmental justice attorney that knows how the industry works, but will also implement the health setbacks and uh, stop issuing the permits when we (laughs) declare that we need to stop issuing them and actually hold big oil responsible for the nearly $12 billion cost of cleanup for California's aging oil and gas wells. That's going to be a big problem going into the future. Even as we phase out and stop all oil production, there's this huge problem that we're going to have for decades of oil wells that need to be decommissioned need to be abandoned. And a lot of the oil companies are going broke right now. And a lot of them that do have bonds are way too low to ever cover any of the cleanup if they do go out of business. So we need someone that's going to hold these oil companies accountable, who's going to see the big picture of our California goals. And yeah, it's going to safeguard our future and hold the line. So I think it's going to be tough to get out of the habit of hiring someone from the industry, but we are pressuring Governor Newsom along with a lot of other environmental organizations to really appoint a climate champion because the person in this position has a lot of power. The governor has a lot of power too and picks this person and can direct this person. But if this person is not following through with what the governor is telling them or what the legislator is passing, that's a huge problem. And we need someone that 
is going to uphold our laws and, and look out for the community first. Are these wells that are abandoned or need to be closed, are they the oil company's responsibility to clean up? Yep, exactly. They are until they go bankrupt. And that's been the case with a lot of these oil companies. They'll remove assets from one entity, put it into another entity, and then declare bankruptcy with that entity. And at the end of the day, taxpayers, we get put on the line for the bill to clean it up. Just here off the coast on the way to Santa Barbara, I know you might have seen the oil island, Rincon Island out there. It's a small little island off of the coast that was created for oil wells. That company, Rincon LLC, went bankrupt a few years ago. And the pressure was building up on those wells. There was going to be a catastrophe. Those wells were going to blow out. They were aging. The company was broke, didn't have any money. So the state had to come in, take over those wells, decommission them. And now the state paid millions of dollars to decommission those wells. And we own them. But this is just one example. This happens everywhere throughout the United States, throughout California. And we have some regulations to make sure that they put some money down. It's called bonding. But the bonding is so, so low, it would not even cover a fraction of the total amount that needs to be put aside to clean these wells. So we really need to raise that bonding. We need to make it harder for these oil companies to pretend like they're bankrupt and leave us with the bill. Like I said, it's going to be a very toxic legacy that's going to take decades to clean up. But it's also promising, too, for workers in the oil and gas industry for a just transition. Like Their jobs are not going to go away. Their companies might pack up and play broke, but we're going to need a lot of these oil workers working in these communities for decades, even after oil production is gone, cleaning up these wells, making sure they're plugged, checking on them on a regular basis, because these just don't go away when the oil companies go away. That's ironic. Because you both mentioned earlier that these companies all receive very lucrative government subsidies. How does that money play into these bankruptcies? Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty ridiculous the amount of subsidies we give to the oil and gas industry. We actually give more to the oil and gas industry than we even spend on education in the U.S. So we say, oh, it's cheaper than renewables, but we're not calculating the true costs on the environment that we're picking up as taxpayers through tax breaks and incentives and just so many ways that the oil and gas industry is making money off of taxpayers while always trying to play broke. That is crazy. I'm wondering what you all at Food and Water Watch think is the best possible future of energy. We need to really look out for a lot of these false solutions, false green solutions like green and gray hydrogen, renewable natural gas, biogas. We need to invest in clean, renewable energy, period, not nuclear. We don't need to be sinking more money into fossil fuel infrastructure. I'm not a fan of Governor Newsom extending the life of Diablo and nuclear power plants, too. We need to be investing heavily in solar, wind, and all true renewable energy sources. That term is getting used and abused a lot. A lot of states consider burning trees as renewable because they'll grow back. So it's under the renewable energy portfolio. So a lot of our money should be doubling down on creating better grids and infrastructure for our communities so we're, we're more sustainable. So people know climate change is here. Legislators want to take action. But the oil industry is trying to divert a lot of this good energy investment and action into all solutions that are going to prop up their industry for decades. So 
we, we really need to, to just go all in on true, renewable, 100% energy. So would that mean more people having solar panels or electric rather than gas appliances? What are some small solutions that could have a really big impact? Yeah, Jim. Sure. We have all of the tools at our disposal to address the climate crisis. And we don't need a new technological fix to do this. What we need is for uh, policymakers to support an end to fossil fuel infrastructure and development. And as you know, homeowners and individuals, there are things that we can do to help limit our greenhouse gas impact. But those things largely need to have policy solutions attached to them. You know, rather than continuing what are literally billions of dollars in subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, Congress can and should support efforts to help consumers electrify their homes. Uh, this is replacing gas stoves with electric stoves and ovens. Uh, it's replacing gas hot water heaters and boilers with electric gas water heaters and boilers that can then utilize solar energy and wind energy from the grid to power our homes, cook our food, and keep ourselves warm in the winter. And I think that as you know, individuals, you know, we can take these steps. But for many low-income and even moderate-income households, some of these investments are, are out of reach. And so we need to make sure that we're providing the proper supports to households to help them to transition their homes and communities off of fossil fuels. I also think that we need to think about our transportation infrastructure, and there's a large focus on electric vehicles. Electric vehicles you know, are certainly better than combustion vehicles, but we need to be thinking more holistically about how we can address our transportation emissions. And that really means a massive expansion of public transportation more walkable and bikeable communities uh, so that we don't have to rely on vehicles for transportation. This will accomplish a few things. One, it will make the transition easier and less costly overall, but it will also help reduce the environmental footprint of clean energy development because you know, clean energy, everything we do has an impact. And so if we can take steps to uh, support public transit, walkable and bikeable communities. That means fewer mining operations that need to be created to extract minerals for batteries and solar panels. It means less land that has to be utilized for those resources as well. And so when I think about the question of what can consumers do, we need to continue to pressure policymakers to enact policies that will help to facilitate the transition away from fossil fuels while those same policymakers are stopping the development of fossil fuels and phasing them out in a very quick timeline. Well, I really appreciate all the work that you do, and I learned a ton today. What would you want to urge listeners to do? Yeah, people can visit our website at foodandwaterwatch.org and you can find out what's going on in your area, actions, events to get involved with. Right here in California, we're kicking off our Protect California's Water campaign and you can go on there too and sign our petition to the governor calling for a lot of the things we talked about today too, ending oil and gas extraction within the state that threatens our water resources. 
uh, putting a moratorium on new alfalfa and almonds, which uses massive amounts of water in a Central Valley area. So uh, you can sign that petition, get involved with our campaign. We're going to be doing a tour throughout the state of California, too, in different areas, talking about these important water issues and really doubling down on Governor Newsom to step up, especially in this time of crisis, even though we've had a lot of water in the past few months, it's not going to make a dent in our overall drought situation here in California. So uh, you can go to our website, get involved with that campaign or any other campaign. And that website for listeners is foodandwaterwatch.org. Okay, well, I just want to thank you both so much, Tomas and Jim, really inspired by all the work you're doing. And hopefully we can collaborate in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Natalie. I just appreciate you putting this together, Natalie. Thank you. That was Food and Water Watch's Jim Walsh and Tomas Morales Rebecki. Thank you so much, Jim and Tomas. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Save California Salmon or any entities mentioned. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder.